What up? You're listening to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. We gon' make it all the way. We don't care what they all will say. Don't listen to the hate, no, listen to my Hello, and welcome back to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. I'm Justin, and today my good buddy, Dr. Derek Williams, is with me. How are you doing, Derek? How is Maui? Dude, it was awesome. I've since decided that I am just not cut out for the working life. I think I was just meant to uh, vacation and travel. <laughs> yeah, dude, Maui was absolutely gorgeous. It was our first time to Hawaii. And uh, Maui, I mean, I know that you've been there, but every day at the end of the day, I'd be talking to Jenny. I'd be telling my wife like, man, today was amazing. There's just no way that we can match this tomorrow. But then every day we did, it was just unbelievable. But yeah, what's new with you? I know you guys were on the road for a while last week. Yeah, well, it definitely wasn't Maui. So it's kind of a tough act to follow there. But yeah, <laughs> each year around this time, we've been for the last couple of years, we've been trying to take the kids on a two to three week trip to a different part of the US, or at least we've only done the US so far. Last year we did the Pacific Northwest for three weeks, which was amazing. Really tough to top. This year we did out east. So we did D.C., which I had never been in Washington, D.C. My kids definitely have not. So we did D.C., Shenandoah Valley for some rafting and hiking, I think with the kids. And so we knocked out at least like 24 yards of the Appalachian Trail. So on the downhill slope now. And then we headed to the coast for a few days and then got back home and felt like we needed a vacation. But it was good. Good bonding time. I'm sure there's good memories made. That's what counts. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But enough about us. Today, we wanted to do a podcast on BS lies that we hear inside the world of dentistry and dispel some myths that may be holding you back. But first, we want to ask that if you're receiving any value from this podcast, all we ask is that you'd give us a five-star rating on iTunes. That's the star all the way to the right. You know, we're not playing ads. That's all we ask of you. And that's it. That is it. So, although for some of us, that could be a big chore too. But let's jump into some of the BS lies we hear and encounter in the world of dentistry. And let's kick it off with number one. What is number one? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked because I was going to say it anyway. Number one, all the crap you hear on social media. And I'll be honest, there are days that I'd like to be completely through with social media. I would say 80 to 90% of the junk I see on there is BS. Regardless where you're at in your career, maybe you're still in school, make sure you very strictly monitor the sources from which you get your information. If you're taking advice from someone who has so much time on their hands that they're on Facebook giving advice during the workday, think about it. I can't remember a time once during a day, I was at the office where I had enough time to get on Facebook and start weighing in with the peanut gallery, giving everybody else advice. Block out the advice from people 
who do not have a proven track record of success, or you'll end up exactly where they are. Personally, I think in dental forms, I just came up with this great idea that there should be like a little emblem or badge next to the picture of the person talking on there, like giving the stats of their practice. So like Dr. So-and-so makes 20 Facebook posts a day, acting like they know what the heck they're talking about, has a practice that they work five days a week at and bring home a hefty $120,000 a year. I think if we had that, then people could more objectively look at it and be like, okay, they probably know what they're talking about or, okay, what the heck are they doing giving advice? So I'm going to reach out to Mark, Mark C and see if we can get that done. Nice. Yeah. That actually would be a cool uh, upgrade in the system. Yeah. Thank you. He owes me. (laughs) I've never been huge on social media. I did during dental school, I spent a lot of time on dental town and, you know, I think you can definitely find a lot of things that are helpful, but I want to kind of throw in a couple things. I think you kind of hit on a few of them, but I think, like you said, at best, social media is only helpful a small percentage of the time. The issue is, like you said, you don't know when the advice is being given, you don't know whether it's solid or when it's junk. You know, there's such a variety of input that you can get. Some of it's just plain crap. Some of it is well-intended, but still wrong. And some of it might be good. Yeah. Real quick, when you said that, I just want to make sure. Yeah. And I don't want to make it sound like I think people are doing crappier out there giving crappy advice on purpose. You know, I think most people are well-intended, but, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't know what you're doing, then regardless what your intentions are, your advice may not be the best. So, Sorry to cut you off, but I just wanted to make sure people knew that's what I meant. Yeah, whatever. We all know that you think everyone's idiots and you're the only one that knows anything. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. (laughs) But yeah, I think there's another part of the issue too, though, even if it's well-intended. So here's one thing that I've heard. I've talked to some dentists who told me that they've never needed a coach or a consultant because if they need advice on something, they just post and they get feedback from dentists online. I have a couple issues with that. First of all, in my opinion, this is the slow way to success. Reason being, when you hire a coach, you're getting extremely personalized attention, planning, and feedback. You know, when I'm working with someone and they have a question, by this time, you know, that they ask this question, we've had hours of discussion together. And, you know, I've looked through pages upon pages of info about their practice, their life situation. So when we're in the middle of this, and I get a question, we already have this huge foundation to determine, you know, what the best course of action is. And when you ask on social media, what you should do in your practice, you're pulling thousands of people and you're going to get extremely varied responses that, and they don't know you and you're not building on that foundation. So if you're wanting the fast track to success, focus and hone your vision in on fewer mentors or, you know, advisors or whatever. It's totally fine to listen and get ideas from, you know, the peanut gallery, but find the best experts that you can and lean mostly on them. Yeah. I've never had someone actually say that to me, like, you know, I don't really need a 
mentor. I've got Facebook. I'll just ask people questions there. But I could definitely see where it happens. I kind of picture that like the solid picture, like Tiger Woods walking into a local driving range and saying, hey, listen up. Can anybody help me here with my game? And then, you know, 10 people will come up and like give 10 different suggestions. And then he's like, eh, I guess I'll take this person's advice and having no idea of how their own game is. And bottom line, that's not how you improve. Maybe sometimes you'll get lucky. Not going to say you won't. But, you know, if you look at the best of the best, that's not what they do. So yeah. and that's what yeah. we're wanting people. We want people to be the best of the best. Let's move on. Number two. And again, this is lies that we hear that gross production is in a highly PPO office means anything. And I've been vocal about this before. If you're a PPO practice, as I was for most of my career, you need to be tracking adjusted production and completely, for the most part, disregard gross production. In my mind, gross production gives false security. It's good for the ego. Hey, we produced 5,000 today or we produced 8,000 today and you're feeling pretty good and you're walking home, going home, your wife, your husband and be like, hey, check me out, produce eight to 5,000. But in reality, you can only collect 60 to 70% of that. You know, I had my front desk put all of our PPO fees in the computer. I didn't want that false security. If I had a bad day, I wanted to know it. I wanted to feel that pain and let it push me to make sure it didn't happen again. Your production for the day is what you can collect on from that day. Telling yourself anything else is purely an ego stroke, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. I guess the only side note to that, and I think you'd agree with me on this, that you know we still want to know how much write-offs are. So although you're not going to be checking it every day, it's good every once in a while. I mean, maybe maybe monthly or quarterly, but to be able to review how much dentistry you're actually doing and then uh, reevaluate if we need to renegotiate insurances or you know drop certain networks. But yes, if you're doing all that, then there's really no sense in looking at daily numbers as far as gross. You want to know what your collectible production is, period. Right. And I, I didn't look at it the write-offs all that much probably, I mean, like you said, and we'll talk about this in this next point because you need to know, so make sure you minimize them. You got to do the best you can. But I think I didn't look mostly because it would just tick me off every day. Yeah. Yeah. Number three, moving on. All your patients are going to get mad and leave if you raise your fees. When I start out working with a client, we always discuss fees and PPO negotiations. And I'd say about 80% of the docs I talk to get real nervous when we start talking about raising your fees. Like several things in dentistry, perception or what will happen in our mind isn't always reality. Like we think our patients are sitting around at home at the dinner table like, Maud, you think Dr. Short is going to raise his cleaning prices $9 this year? <laughs> I don't know, Henry. I, I really hope not. No, we give ourselves too much credit. Our patients aren't sitting around thinking about us or that crap or as much as we probably like to think they are. Or, right. you know, we think if we do a 5% increase, all our patients are going to call up tomorrow and ask for the records to be transferred. And in reality, None of that happens. 
patients either just don't care, they don't notice, or maybe they notice and care, but they just don't say anything. Honestly, any of those three is fine with me. You know, of all the clients I've had that have raised their fees and were really nervous about it, I think the worst scenario is like three patients over a six-month period is the most I've heard even mention it. On the flip side, you know who isn't worried about raising fees? Your supply companies, your labs, your equipment manufacturers. They're not sitting there saying, man, I hope Dr. Short doesn't mind that we raised all our supply fees 20% this year. So all that to say, if it's been a while since you've raised your fees, you're due. Raise them. And don't even bother with the excuse, well, most of my patients are PPO patients, man, so it doesn't really matter. If it doesn't matter, then just do it. Also, when you go to renegotiate those PPO fees, you'll want your UCR fees higher. And if you want to know who we refer to for PPO negotiations, email us and you don't have to wait two years to renegotiate like most insurances want you to think. So bottom line, raise your fees. Yeah, well said. I don't really have anything to add. I think you covered that really well. And I dropped the mic, Derek. This is a mic drop. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, I'll just take the rest from here then. Yeah, people probably appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, so next, number four, another myth. If you only work three days a week or, you know, you take time off, your patients are going to all get mad and leave. You know, this kind of goes back to that previous point that really patients don't care as much as we think they do. A lot of times, you know, there's maybe like one out of 100 patients or maybe maybe even like one out of 500 that says something negative. And then we assume that all of our patients are thinking the same thing, you know, so then we start to kind of subconsciously have this fear about that. And you have to be careful not to fall into that trap because I know that I have before and I know that my staff do at times. I'll hear them say, well, we've had patients talk about, you know, complain about this and I'll say, okay, well, who? And, you know, we'll talk about it. And it's like one person and it was a week ago and we haven't heard anybody else since then and, and a long time before then. So be careful not to fall in that trap. Next, with uh, as far as working three days a week or taking more time off, if it's possible for one then it is possible for many. And there are plenty of offices that do this. So the concept has already been proven. So rather than, you know, having this big fear, like, how am I going to make it work? I mean, yeah, we need to answer those questions, but you can kind of rest on the fact that there are a lot of offices doing this. And so it's going to work out. I do occasionally have patients say to me, man, you know, hey, doc, it must be nice to only work three days a week. And when they do, I say, yeah, it is. It is really nice. But, you know, sometimes I can tell that they also felt like, oh, man, he must maybe he's not busy enough or doing well enough that uh, or that he has the choice to only work three days a week. But as far as I know, I've never had a patient actually leave because of the schedule that I've chosen. And the last thing is, this is your life. This is your practice. Your patients didn't give up eight years of their life to go to dental school. Your team didn't take out hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans or to buy the practice. So why would you allow them to dictate when you do and don't work or to hold you hostage from the working schedule that you really want to work? 
So let's talk just quickly about the logistics. Justin, I know that you and I have ran things pretty similar in our offices, but can you kind of run us through the logistics of how you actually set that up as far as working three days a week and uh, vacations? Sure. One thing I want to, before moving on to that question, I want to clarify just so people at home, in their car, wherever you're listening to, we're clear on something that Derek said, and that is the fact that patients looked at it like, man, if he can only work three days a week, he must be doing pretty well. He must be a pretty good dentist if he has that choice to only work three days a week. I think that was the point you were getting at, correct? Yeah, thanks. So going back to your question, how did I do three days a week and time off? So here's how it worked for me. I took about 10 weeks off per year. My team each got four weeks paid off plus holidays if the holidays fell during a work week. My team could choose their four weeks from any of the weeks I was already taking off. So I take 10 weeks off. You pick your four from those 10. Now, on a side note, and this is totally we're going to tangent off and we're going to come back in my first office. When I was just starting out and I was only taking four weeks off per year and my team of three each got four weeks off, we took them all at the same time. We had a meeting around the end of the year and we all weighed in. I got the final say, but, you know, it worked fine. I tried to listen to what everyone said. If they have something important, I try to be amenable to that because if you've got three team members and they all took off different times, it would be really tough to hit our goals. You know, three people times four weeks off, that's three months of the year that we'd be shorthanded, you know? So same thing. What if you have five or six team members who each only get, let's say two weeks off per year and they all take them at a different time, six people times two weeks, that's 12 freaking weeks, one quarter of your year that you're playing a man down. Does that make any sense? That's like, you know, a football team saying, hey, we're going to play first quarter with one guy sitting on the bench. And we'll see how we do. No, that's not how you play if you want to run a business like a champ. And I'll tell you what most people are thinking right now, because I get it. I'm human. I felt the same dang thing. If I set rules on when my team can take time off, well, They'll all walk out of me. I could never do that. They'll get ticked. They'll revolt. They'll leave. And I'll be stuck in a practice with zero people and just me. And if that's how you feel and you approach it, maybe they will. But I know from experience, not just Facebook quarterbacking here, that's not how the best business leaders out there think and lead. And going back to a phrase from a few weeks ago on the podcast, I call it grow a pair leadership, grow a pair and lead your team and your business like you're playing to win. Sorry for the tangent, but like I said, going back to the original, I took 10 weeks off. The team could pick four from those. If I had four weeks off instead of 10 weeks and they had four, we'd choose the weeks together. If I had four weeks off and they had two weeks, they could choose their two weeks from any of my four weeks that I was off. And I'm happy to ask, like I said, if they have any important trips they have coming up, maybe they have a family reunion, a wedding, whatever. And if we can plan around them, we would try. You know, I'm not planning out vacation this way to punish them or be a jerk. I'm doing this to make sure my business wins. 
So moving on to my normal schedule. On a normal week, I worked three days a week. On Thursdays, my hygienist would see patients under general supervision, and they knew whenever they were doing recall appointments or new patient appointments, they knew to steer patients who had really good teeth or rarely needed work or maybe perio maintenance to Thursdays when setting up their recall appointment. So Mrs. Smith comes in, she's never had a cavity, she's 400 years old. They're going to say, hey, how is Thursday six months from now for your next recall? You know, they just knew like clockwork, that's what we offer. So what did we do with patients who had trouble when I was gone? Because that's probably what people are wondering. Really, I didn't even have another general dentist covering for me. You know, if the team was in the office and a patient had an issue, like on Thursdays or a week when I was out, they'd bring them in, take an x-ray, text it to me, and I'd tell them what to do, i.e. antibiotics, see them when I get back, or send them to oral surgeon or endo. You know, if it was a denture adjustment or a temporary fell off or a filling was high, they would just take care of it and not bother me because they were trained on how to handle that. Those few options alone took care of 99.9% .9 of patients' emergencies in most cases. So next question, what if you were all gone and a patient had an issue, like on a weekend? I'd say a handful of times over 10 years, my assistant would go in to replace a temp. Otherwise, it was always drugs and we'll see you Monday if the situation called for it. I think I went in like three times over 12 years because a patient of records child fell or was hit in the face or something like that. And after all that, patients didn't complain. No one died. We didn't lose anybody because of that was our protocol for when we weren't in the office or I wasn't in the office. Patients never really thought about it. And like anything, whether it's this or anything else, a lot of it is on how you present it to the patients. Like if you go in like, oh, crap, I know you're not going to like this, but Dr. Short isn't here on Thursdays. He's not going to be able to do your hygiene exam. You know, then the patients can be like, what the hell? I really wanted a hygiene exam today. You know, but if you're like, you know, just so you know, Dr. Short's not in the office. Um, so good news for you. You don't have to have a check today and we'll get you next week or next time you're in to calm any fears the patients may have, we would, you know, if my hygienist saw something, they would take a picture, they would take an x-ray if they need it, they would put a note on my desk, I would look at it Monday morning, and if the patient needed something, I would call them. Not that big a deal. So don't make mountains out of molehills. I think uh, if I can just add, when I first went to three days, I had a lot of these same concerns and kind of questions. I mean, I knew that it was possible, but I just wasn't sure, you know, language and, you know, where the rubber hits the road, how all of this was actually going to play out. But ultimately, it was like, I mean, exactly the same, the things that we just talked about, you know, it's, this is my life. I'm the one that has put myself in a position. So I'm not going to allow these fears or these unknowns to guilt me into living a schedule or a lifestyle that I really don't want to. So that's what it comes down to, I think. Okay, let's go to the next one. Number five, the myth. You need a large practice with multiple dentists or even just multiple practices to reach a large profit and to really make it as a, you know, a powerful dentist. 
I've shared this in the past, but this is a myth that I bought into at one point. Let me get one thing straight real quick. I'm not saying that this isn't a valid path to success. There's plenty of people out there that you know are doing it and doing it well. I'm just saying that it's not the only one. As DSOs have become bigger, we see more and more dentists with the idea of multiple practice ownership. And like I said, I bought into this dream. I thought it would be the perfect setup. And I know you've kind of shared with us on here how you purchased your second practice in hopes that it would kind of do the same. But if I remember right, so kind of going back to this point that you really don't need a large practice or multiple practices. If I remember right, the majority of your career as a dentist, you worked in a practice that only had three ops. Is that true? Right. I would say at least 80% of my career, probably. So, I mean, I think that's a huge piece of evidence for, you know, everybody out there listening that, uh, again, one of those excuses, like, are you going to use this as an excuse or are you going to maximize your practice? And I've heard that from several dentists saying, I really think if if I'm going to get bigger, I've got to have a bigger practice. And don't get me wrong, there's definitely going to be a point where expanding can make a big difference as far as increasing your capacity and your ability to produce. But I think that what I see a lot of the time is that dentists would rather believe that their situation is holding them back and that you know they've done all that they can, when in reality, there's still a lot more that they could do to grow in their current situation, their current practice, just the way that it is. And I think your next point, the next myth, you know, you're going to kind of get into this a little bit, but it's easier to just throw our hands up in the air and say, well, it is what it is. Nothing I can do to change it. You know, insurance is bad. You know, a lot of these things that we're saying, it's easy to just say that, you know, we have no control because then it takes the pressure off of us to step it up and to perform. But there may be times where, you know, that is somewhat true that things are changing, but come on, take some responsibility and start moving and start making changes that are going to get you the direction that you want to be. Yep. And I think we could probably take a whole episode and just kind of dissecting what you covered there. But there's been so many times when I've talked to doctors that are like, hey, I'm thinking about opening another practice. Okay, great. I'm all for it. Why are you doing that? Well, because I want to increase profit or I want to take more time off or whatever. And you've really got to think through it because I would say a solid eight times out of 10 that if we look at their practice and say, okay, you want to do this because you want to make an extra hundred, $200,000 a year. Let's look at your practice real close and make sure that we can't get that same profit out of your practice with the employees you already have, with the overhead you already have, with the rent you already have, with the headaches you already have. And I would bet most of the time we can do that, but sometimes it looks easier from the outside and sometimes looks cooler to just go, I'm just going to go get a new practice and do it opposed to actually putting the work and effort it takes to improving yours. But I can tell you that sometimes it's great, but a lot of times the multiple practice ownership is not all it's cracked up to be. You know, going back to the social media, you get the highlight reel. I think we all know that, right? Instagram, Facebook, you're getting the highlight reel. No one's on there like, man, this sucks. I hate owning two or three practices or And again, I don't want to make it sound like we are against that because 100% we're not. What we are for 
is maximizing everything that you already have and then moving on. That's all it is. If you end up having a thousand practices, awesome. We will support that as long as those first 999 are, you're not just leaving fat on the bone. Okay. Number six. I think this is our last one. And that is, it's either easy or it's not possible. And neither are true. By it, we're referring to having a very successful practice, running it the way you want, with the profit you want, team you want, and schedule you really want. So first, it's not easy. Like anything in life, if you want something special, it's going to take more work than the average dentist is going to put in. The effort you put in, the habits you develop are ultimately going to drive your reality, whatever that is. If you put in the bare ass minimum or spend your time focusing on the wrong things, you're not going to reap the reward someone else is who's putting in twice the effort someone who's focusing on the right things is going to achieve. And I can tell you with 100% complete confidence that the one thing in common the most successful people in any profession have is that they make a habit of doing the things unsuccessful people are not willing to do. So we're all on the same page that it's not easy, but it's worth it, right? Yes. Right. Thank you, Derek. The next part of that is it is possible. I think back to the social media thing again, which is filled with people who want to get you to settle for mediocrity and just be good enough. They may not even realize that that's what they're doing. because And the reason why people do that is because it makes them feel good when you don't achieve at a higher level than them. You know, so they don't feel bad about where they're at. And we've talked a little bit about that. And I guess this is kind of a common theme that continues to come up as far as comparisons and everything. One thought that I wanted to add, I remember talking to you after you finished the book that you wrote with Dave Maloli, Titans of Dentistry. Anyway, for anyone that doesn't know, Titans of Dentistry was a book that Justin and Dave wrote, and they modeled it after Tim Ferriss's book, tools of Titans. And in it, basically they go in and interview, I don't remember how many, was it like 40 dentists? Yeah, I think just shy. Okay. And basically ask them, you know, what their habits were, what struggles they had, triumphs and all those kind of things. So at the time that you wrote this book, you know, you were already very well accomplished, but you told me that when you went into it, you kind of expected to see like some sort of magic, you know, you're looking at the best of the best and, you know, you expected to see like some sort of magic or almost this unknown element in those that you were interviewing because they were just the cream of the crop. But then you found out that there really was no magic. All of these people had failed and they had struggled and it was a fight to get to where they are. Right. And when you realize that there is no magic element, then you realize, oh, I mean, these people have had struggles and failures just like me. And then all of a sudden, because there's no magic element, there is no reason why you can't have their same level of success or, you know, push yourself to perform at a higher level that you would like to be at. 100%. 
When you reach a certain level of success, you stop caring what people think or who knows about it because your confidence reaches another level. And confidence is built from winning. And even though the wins may start off small, which is fine, every successful person you see or know started off with small wins, then gained confidence and went out and won again. So maybe that's starting by waking up at 6 a.m. tomorrow instead of 7. To me, that's a win. It shows discipline and will increase your confidence in yourself. Maybe it's confronting a team member or telling a patient what they really need instead of wimping out. Maybe it's training your team on something that you want to see happen in the office that isn't happening. Or maybe it's hitting a monthly high in the office. Whatever it is, prove to yourself you have the discipline to win at something and then go out and do it again and see how fast your confidence grows. So confidence, you know, just going back to that book, confidence was a huge theme in that book, especially when it came to case acceptance. You know, if you're being wishy-washy, you know, well, you got a missing tooth. I mean, you could maybe do an implant or maybe a bridge or maybe a flipper or I don't know, you know, versus, hey, you're missing a tooth here. You know, this is exactly what we should do. We should place a bone graft. That will take three months to heal. Then we can put a little screw in there that will act like the root of the tooth. And then three months after that, we can put a tooth on there. It will function just like new. You'll never know you're missed a tooth, stuff like that. And that confidence, you know, which one are you going to choose? You know, which one are you going to have more confidence than that doctor who presents it? So that's it. Be confident, you know, make the moves, get the wins to build your confidence if that's an issue. So that's a wrap for this week. Thank you guys for listening. Can't tell you how much we appreciate it. You can reach out to us at any time at Justin, Derek, or Steve at thelifestylepractice.com. You can join us in conversations at the Lifestyle Practice podcast page. And like I said, to get any value from this podcast, we'd ask for a five-star review. If you're not receiving any value, then what the heck are you still doing here? Anyways, <laughs> Bye. until next week, peace. Peace.